Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. Did you say I've got a lot to learn? Well, don't think I'm trying not to learn. Since this is the perfect spot to learn. Back in the early 1970s, when I heard the story about the kids in Cleveland, it forever changed my thinking about education. I was working for the Midwest region of the newly formed U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and came upon the story of some high school educators who had gotten a government grant to teach their students about water pollution by actually having them go out, collect samples, run the tests, and write a report. In today's world, hands-on education is pretty much accepted, but back in the late 60s and 70s, it was pretty radical. That was about the same time I started a part-time career as a college teacher. Those positions are called adjuncts that would continue on for about 35 years off and on and would also become a major part of my consulting practice. I made teaching by doing a major part of how I conducted classes over the years. Remember, this was in a pre-internet era where a good part of education was done by a lecture, reading, and library research. When I started teaching at Roosevelt University in the early 1970s, my methods were pretty standard. I had gone to Roosevelt under the GI Bill for a degree in urban studies. I had been admitted to the University of Chicago's master's program in geography, but the courses were all taught during the day when I had my regular job. But Roosevelt's option worked. It was night school. I had become friends with the head of the geography department there, and he suggested I develop a course or two in environmental studies and said that it would be offered in the geography program. I loaded the students up with readings from not only textbooks, but also from other environmental thinkers, from Thoreau to Paul Ehrlich to Rachel Carson and so on. I really didn't enjoy lecturing. I drifted more towards a Socratic method of teaching through questions and answers and also assigning short papers. And from the start, I wanted to give students a real-world perspective, bringing in guest speakers, going out on field trips, sending them out on Earth Day, for example, to pass out flyers about environmental awareness. My favorite class activity was a field trip. We did it each semester, and we went down to the Indiana Dunes for a look at that amazing ecosystem. I was fortunate to have been able to enlist a real professor of ecology from a nearby university to conduct these field trips, which were always a highlight of the course. Other field trips included boat rides down the Chicago River to observe air and water pollution, and on one occasion, a train trip to Minneapolis for a conference that featured the great E.F. Schumacher, whose groundbreaking book, Small is Beautiful, had recently been published. Over time, I developed other courses, one of my favorite being urban environmental issues. It focused on what we now call environmental justice. 
the serious and diverse impact of such things as auto pollution, lead poisoning, lead drinking water pipes, those kinds of issues on urban city populations. Field trips included forays into poor neighborhoods to photo document these problems and their impacts. Some of the field work my students did occasionally made it into the daily newspapers back then. One article followed a lecture by the head of the Chicago Park District to a class of mine that uh, actually took place in Grant Park. Another class headed out to the middle-class neighborhood of Chicago's Avondale area, where students measured the quality of life and found the community so vibrant that wouldn't even support a dirty bookstore. These out-of-classroom experiences were terrifically popular with students, and we were able to get a government education grant to expose teachers and community activists to these techniques for teaching. For example, we had speakers on air pollution from the public health school at the University of Illinois. We had an expert on feral dogs from Missouri. He came up and shared research that showed that dogs cruised the neighborhoods at about the same time the dog catchers were on break. That was fun. The grant funded purchases of noise monitors so we could measure levels of noise throughout the downtown area. So it was a very uh, immersive experience for those uh, that came to that course. I got as much out of the Roosevelt classes, I think, as the students, and this influenced my work at EPA, where I started a monthly magazine called Environment Midwest, which served as an information exchange for environmental stakeholders, from community activists to business people, government officials, educators, uh, people sharing solutions to environmental problems. That was the whole focus. With a suggestion and a nudge from my boss on improving the exchange of ideas on dealing with pollution controls, I put together a program that we called Pollution Prevention Pays. The brochure had a hideous green and rainbow design, but attracted an overflow crowd in the middle of winter for this first conference featuring businesses like 3M and Dow sharing their ideas. The conference was a turning point for EPA nationally and was repeated around the country, helping turn the image of EPA from one of a policeman to one of a problem solver. Another initiative utilized the services of a popular Twin Cities weatherman named Dr. Walt Lyons. He was a PhD meteorologist who produced for us a series of short video clips to be used for nightly weather forecasts at TV stations. Dr. Walt's reports helped educate viewers to the problems of interstate air pollution. A few years later, this problem of interstate air pollution became a major national issue and precipitated conflict among a number of states over who was responsible for controlling wandering emissions. Another attempt to alert the public to regional air and water pollution problems resulted in a live theatrical production that my office was able to launch in the summer of 1968 in communities all along the Ohio River. We engaged a producer from Cincinnati who contacted a musical talent in New York, who, by the way, went on to write the famous TV Monk series of the 80s. My contact with a woman from the theatrical department at Appleton College in Wisconsin, who was already doing a show on Great Lakes issues, brought the whole thing together. 
It was called Live on the River, and it had a humorous plot about filming a TV show featuring actors playing Mark Twain and Stephen Foster, who actually confront real Mark Twain and Stephen Foster come back to life, of course. This live production played on riverfront stages in towns from Cairo, Illinois to Ashland, Ohio. It was attended by thousands of people over the summer of 1978 and was featured in stories on the CBS Evening News and the New York Times. The show asked people to think about the trade-offs between polluting coal from the region and public health and ended up with the Republican governor of Ohio calling for me to be fired. Luckily, the Democrats were running EPA at the time. I did call the governor's bluff, however, asking if he had seen the script. No reply. Story died. One other initiative during this time included putting together a radio adventure series on environmental issues directed towards kids, especially teenagers. This was during a time when you could actually do stuff like this on a radio station. We produced a weekly radio show like the ones from the Golden Era, where stories were brought to life by young actors. It was also an outgrowth of a five-minute radio series on public affairs features we had already been distributing to Midwest stations featuring various EPA managers and environmentalists talking about pollution issues. The new 15-minute weekly series was titled Earth Twins and told the story of teenage twins Anne and Mike Safer, who were involved with their local ecology club and who had focused on solving community problems in their own area. Earth Twins, the adventures of the Safer Twins, Anne and Mike, leaders in the Newtown High School Ecology Club who help their classmates and community fight for a better environment for tomorrow. Earth Twins is a public affairs presentation of this radio station in cooperation with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Now, episode number four, a tank full of troubles. I still think you should have bought no lead. Big deal. I don't see that it makes a difference. I'll bet it does. I'll bet your car wouldn't pass the test. What test? The test of your emissions control system. Let's go to the voluntary testing station and find out. Right now? Sure, why not? I wrote a series of outlines about each of the shows and then advertised for student writers at Northwestern and the University of Chicago. At the same time, a long-time pal of mine and reporter at a local news radio station made contact with an acting class at Roosevelt University, and we recorded the entire series in just a couple of days. Dozens of Midwestern cities aired the series, and it was a runner-up that year for the National Peabody Award. I actually think we didn't get that award simply because there was no precedent for anybody in government ever coming up with an original creative idea. My next adventure in teaching took place around 1980 when I was able to take advantage of a special government program that allowed me to stay on the government payroll while I went off to teach at a university. I chose Northwestern because I lived nearby and had gone there for grad school. I secured a position at the Kellogg Business School in a time when business degrees were becoming the rage. My time at Kellogg was fun and productive. I worked in the program for public and nonprofit management, which made sense since I had been in government. 
I loved hanging out with the young, ambitious, and outgoing students. Where the University of Chicago's strength was in finance, Kellogg was a powerhouse in marketing with some of the nation's top professors on the faculty. Besides doing some mentoring, I also got permission to develop courses in communications, which the school did not have. If you think about who makes it to the corner office in most organizations, it's the person with the best communication skills, both inside and outside the company. So I developed a basic course on that called Media for Managers, which not too long afterwards, I was able to turn into a book. The first course was followed by a course in crisis communications. And finally, in 1983, a guest lecture course I put together on the new emerging technologies in communications. That course had the highest single enrollment, 150 students, in the history of the school to that point, and was only eclipsed a few years later when Oprah Winfrey was brought in for a course on, I'm not sure what, star power? While at Kellogg, I had a chance to sit in on a course by a professor who did training of managers for on-camera interviews and news conferences. I immediately thought that would be a great business to be in, and when I left Kellogg to go on into consulting, media training became one of my hallmark offerings. This was a time when Mike Wallace and the 60 Minutes ambush interviews were scaring the bejesus out of lots of corporate executives, and there was plenty of business out there. For the next 20 years, training for on-camera interviews was a major part of my communications consulting practice. What I would do is, after some basic training, I would put each manager on camera, I'd ask some tough questions, and then give them pointers so that during a second interview, they could show some progress. It worked out quite well, and each student was able to leave the class with a copy of their interviews. Later, I began doing training courses in crisis communications for my consulting practice, and we would set up a difficult situation like an explosion or corporate misfeasance case and show the students how to handle not only the press, but irate groups as well. In the early part of this new century, I was asked to develop a marketing program for an innovative multidisciplinary program in environmental management at the Illinois Institute of Technology. While I would be brought into lecture occasionally, it wasn't until 2009 that I was able to offer my own course in environmental communications. It allowed me to come full circle in my teaching career. Like the hands-on teaching that started me off back in the early 70s, this course, I decided, would attempt to do the same thing. But the twist now was to bring the laptop into the classroom. I put students into teams each week and gave them a communications problem, like charges their company was doing greenwashing, covering up environmental problems. They would then take most of the class to put together a communications marketing strategy using their laptop as necessary to help formulate a plan that the entire class would get a chance to critique. It was a hit and reminded me of how important learning by doing still is. Today, we even have more sophisticated tools with virtual and immersion learning, with leading manufacturing companies like GM and the like, investing in headsets that allow workers to practice virtually rather than learn on expensive equipment. When it comes to training by doing, we're in a good place these days. 
I was never a natural teacher, but one thing I've always been good at is getting into the heads of people I'm helping. Having spent so many years of my life in boring lectures, I guess, this was my gift to the students. Well, that's my take on teaching. See you next time. Stay smart, work hard. Let's start with the ABC of it. You've been listening to Here Comes Yesterday, a podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead. Your ideas and reactions can also be very useful. Contact Frank Corrado via email at corrado at c4m.com. That's C-O-R-R-A-D-O at the letter C, the number 4, the letter M, dot com. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening, and catch us next time.